2 Samuel chapter number 6 is where we're going to be this evening. Looking at a somewhat familiar story. And that's what I'm going to talk about, familiar. The word familiar means this, frequently seen or experienced, easily recognized of everyday occurrence. We're familiar with a lot of things, right? It's not the drive to work. If you still drive to work and don't work from home, the drive to work is familiar. I mean, you could do it with your eyes closed. Honestly, maybe some mornings you have, you know, those early Monday mornings. We just, we just get familiar. Now, we, we get familiar with our kids. Uh, if, you, if you're at the point where you've got children in your home or perhaps you've already seen your children come home, you uh, come through the home and they've moved on, uh, you could probably testify to this. You get so familiar with your kids, you, you think they'll always be young and they'll always be there. And, and you kind of take it for granted in the familiarity of just the mundaneness of a schedule. And then before you know it, you know, time passes quickly, doesn't it? Familiarity, it, it, it slips in. But tonight I, I, I speak of familiarity in the sense that our, our Christian culture has become profane. I don't mean profane in the sense of foul language, but profane because of the familiarity we have with it. We can approach it with a casual, apathetic, flippant attitude. We, we profane holy things by making them common ordinary, usual, and mundane. I don't know everybody in the room tonight, but perhaps there's nobody. This is your first Sunday in church. It's not your first time to sing Amazing Grace. It it just becomes habitual. And while I'm for the habit of church attendance, I want us to see tonight there's danger in familiarity. There's great danger in allowing the things of God to become too Familiar. You're in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Look at verse number 1. Let's read this story together. Look at verse 1. The Bible says this. Again, David gathers together all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose. He went with all the people that were with him from Bailey of Judah to bring up from thence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubims. And they set the ark of God. A lot of times we refer to it as the ark of the covenant. They set it upon a new cart. They brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah, and Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. They brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God. And he took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God smote him there for his error. And there he died by the ark of God. Look at verse 8. And David was displeased, because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perizzah to this day. What's happened here in the nation of Israel and their history, I believe what's happened is they just became a little too familiar. There's three truths I want us to see from this passage about the danger of familiarity. Here's the first one. Number one, you assume what has been will always be. 
You assume what has been will always be. Now, what is the Ark of the Covenant? Perhaps you're familiar, but I'm going to act like you're not familiar with the Ark of the Covenant for just a few moments. What is this Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant was the most important piece of furniture in the tabernacle, which, which Moses constructed while they were in the wilderness. Just this summer, my family and I were up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and up there they have a, a recreation of the tabernacle, and, and you see the actual size based on the scriptures and what it was supposed to be laid out. And it, 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 you see the altar out front, and, and you see some uh, obviously some mock animals ready for sacrifice. You get to step into the inner sanctuary. And and then the Holy of Holies is in there, right? And in the innermost room of the tabernacle was this Ark of the Covenant. It was about two two foot by four foot by two foot. It's covered in gold. And on the top of it was two cherubims with their wings covering over the top. And that top part of the Ark of the Covenant would become known as the mercy seat. It was so important that only one time a year, only one man would go into that very Holy of Holies up there in Pennsylvania. They don't even let you in the Holy of Holies. It's not the Holy of Holies. But just to give the respect that that the Bible would have given, you kind of look in through a window and, and you try to imagine what was it like one time a year. For that high priest to go walking in there and, and offer that blood sacrifice he'd pour on the mercy seat. And, and that Ark of the Covenant was so important because it represented God's presence. Everywhere the Ark went, that's where God went. Here's how God symbolized his presence, right? When they would construct the tabernacle and set it up in the midst of the the nation of Israel, a God would then rest by day, that pillar of cloud, or at night, that pillar of fire. Now, God can, we know he's all places everywhere, right? We understand that, he's omnipresent. But God was saying, this Ark is very special to me because this represents my presence, in the Ark of the Covenant were three things that would represent his precepts, his, his provision, his promises. Praise God for that. But he said, ultimately, it's, it's about the Ark. Now, you know what? The Ark was just a box. That's all it was. It was made out of wood, and it was covered in gold. There's actually nothing special. You understand what I'm saying there? It's just, just a box. Yet, yet God said it was special. And, and God used it to symbolize his presence Here's what he said about it, Exodus 25, 22. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things, which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. It was so special that we know the tabernacle was temporary. God would say, let's move, and they wandered through the wilderness. And as they would move, the very first thing they would do is they would deconstruct the tabernacle as they would cover up the Ark of the Covenant that's recorded for us in Numbers in chapter number 4. And they would cover up that Ark to protect it. It was so important. It was, it was so special. What had it been through? We, we know when they crossed over the Jordan River that the Levites were the, the, the first ones, and they, they bear the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. And, man, when they took that step into the Jordan River, God miraculously stopped that water. We know it walked around the, the city of Jericho. We know it would go into other battles. And, and yet here's what has happened now. Catch us up to where we are in Second Samuel 6. What's happened is a sad thing has occurred. Well, what's occurred? The Ark was, was taken. For the first time in the history of Israel, since the the ark had been given to them, it's now gone. They they don't possess the ark. 
1 Samuel in chapter number 4. I want you, we're going to be over there in just a second. We're going to come back to 2 Samuel, but would you flip to 1 Samuel and see these verses with me? Look at 1 Samuel chapter number 4. Flip over there real quick, a couple pages back to the left of your Bible. Look at verse number 2 when you get there. We'll, we'll stay here in just a couple of moments. 1 Samuel chapter number 4. Look at verse 2. It says this, And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines. They slew of the army in the field 4,000. Verse 3, And when the people were coming to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Look what they say. Let's fetch the Ark of the Covenant out of the Lord, out of Shiloh, that when it cometh among us, it may, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. So the people sent Shiloh, they may bring from thence the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth between the cherubims and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, not good guys, were with the Ark of the Covenant. Here's what I believe happened. I, 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 we know in former times, back in Numbers 14, I, it was carried into battle, and that was significant, and that's why they won. But the Ark of the Covenant was never meant to be a lucky charm. It, it, it was never meant to be. If we, we kind of have this and we have this thing, uh, then, then it's automatic victory. It was always about the presence of God. And here in 1 Samuel 4, they cheapened it. They treated it as if it, it was nothing. Why? They'd always had the ark. Why would there be a time they didn't have the ark? The ark had been there, some big events, but it, what I submit to you, it wasn't the ark. It was God that was there with them. And God is the one that brought the victories. And God is the one that brought about the success for Israel. It wasn't that box. It was God himself. Could they treat it cheaply? I submit they get too familiar with it. And they, they go into battle. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, And the Philistines fought, Israel was smitten. And they fled every man into his tent. And there was a very great slaughter. There fell this time 30,000. The first time 4,000. They said, well, we just missed the ark. Let's get it. Now 30. And look at verse 11, the first phrase. And the ark of God was taken. See, I think familiarity breeds assumptions. They assumed what had been would always be. Five times from verse 11 to verse 22. Those next verses, five times it will say this phrase, and the ark of God was taken, or the ark of God is taken. What a sad commentary. What a sad thing to be the, the people, the generation that lost the ark. Verse 16, would you look there with me in chapter 4? Verse, uh, 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 4, look at verse 16. What's the big deal? The man said unto Eli, he comes, he escapes. He said, I am he that came out of the army. Remember, 30,000 died. I fled today out of the army. He said, what is there done, my son? Eli, the high priest, wants to know. Verse 17, the messenger answers and says, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There has been also a great slaughter among the people. And thy two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. He says it. The ark of God is taken. And it came to pass when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell from off the seat backward by the side of the gate. His neck broke. He died, for he was an old man and heavy, and he had judged Israel 40 years. The news hits Eli so hard. Now, Eli's got all, plenty of problems. But the news hits Eli so hard it was too much for him to take. I think Eli had made some assumptions throughout his ministry years. That the, what Israel had always had, they would always have. But the story doesn't end there. Look at verse 19. Eli's daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, she was with child, says near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law 
and her husband were dead. She bowed herself in travail, for her pains came upon her. Verse 20, about the time of her, of her death, the women that stood by her said unto her, Fear not, for thou hast borne a son. She answered not, neither did regard it. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel. Because the ark of God was, is, was taken, and because of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, The glory is departed from Israel. For the ark of God is taken. Eli, here's the news, drops dead. Phineas' wife, here's the news, goes into child labor. She knows her husband's dead, her father-in-law is dead. In her dying moments, she has enough about her to realize, hey, Israel, we had assumed what had been, would always be. But God's glory has departed. Have you assumed what has been in your life? will always be. I don't know the history of Fellowship Baptist Church like I do the history of Beacon Baptist Church. So I'll give you a real quick rundown of of Beacon Baptist Church. Beacon Baptist Church was actually started by a postal worker in downtown Raleigh in 1948. He got a burden for his postal route and started sharing the gospel, and that led to a Bible study getting started in his home, and the Bible study grew, and Brother J.D. Balance said, Man, this Bible study's growing. We probably should call a pastor and start ourselves a church right here in Raleigh. And Beacon Baptist Church was formed. God, bless, God has blessed. I praise God for that. Beacon Baptist Church. Now almost, it'll be 75 years next June the 6th. God's blessed the ministry of Beacon Baptist Church. Praise God for that. But you know what is not a requirement? For God to bless the next 75. Matter of fact, God tarries. There's no, there's, no, there's no promise that standing at 2110 Trawick Road is a, is a place where we would gather called Beacon Baptist Church. I'm not prophesying that. I'm not praying that. I'm, I'm saying just because it has been doesn't mean it always would be if we forsake what it took to get us to where we are. Hey, we're headed to youth conference. I praise God for youth conferences in my life. I praise God for this youth conference we're heading to, we've been going to for quite a while now. And I can walk around the campus of the Shawnee Baptist Church and I can take you to places where I've knelt in prayer with several different teenagers through, through these many years of going. I can show you places where tears have hit, hit the ground. So I'll preach to our kids for just a second. Just because that has happened doesn't mean it will this year. There's nothing magical about a youth conference. Yeah, Dean Miller's hilarious. I love hearing him preach. Brother Johnny Prope is is one of my heroes. I'm glad he's there. And we we can name other men that'll be there. But hear me, just because God's changed lives at Shawnee before doesn't mean he's required to do it again because we're meeting for three days and that's what happens at youth conference. No, friend, there is danger in familiarity. When you get so familiar, it just becomes mundane. We just go to church. We just read our Bible. We just pray. But it's as dead as three o'clock in the morning because we assume what God has done, he'll just do just because. And that's a dangerous place to live. I, I know that because I've lived there. And you probably have too. She said, Ichabod, you might as well write Ichabod across, the country, across our country. The glory has departed. We've served with power before. We assume we just serve with power again. We've sang with power before. We just assume we'll just keep on singing with power. We've preached with power before. 
We just assume every time we preach with power again. There's danger in that. You know what the biggest danger perhaps is? I'm afraid tonight we become like Samson in Judges chapter 16 and verse 20. See, he was toying with Delilah. What's the secret to your strength? And he bust off the new ropes and he bust off the new vines. Because Samson thought everything was fine. Because it was never about Samson's hair, was it? The strength wasn't in Samson's hair. What was the strength then? God's presence. God's presence. But Samson had always carried the gates. Samson had always killed a thousand with the jawbone of a donkey. Samson had always bust over the ropes. And you know what Judges 16, 20 says? Samson woke up out of his sleep and he knew not that the Lord was not with him. And just like every other time, he said, man, I'll bust these off. God was gone. Because he assumed what had been would always be. And the danger of becoming so familiar is we assume what has been will always be. I submit to you that's the first danger. The second danger is this. You redefine what God requires. The danger of familiarity is we assume what has been will always be. Secondly, you redefine. You say, what do you mean? We'll we'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 6 for the rest of the time. So flip back over to 2 Samuel chapter 6 with me if you would and follow along. It it told us that David decided to get the ark back. We read when it was gone, when it was taken, it's been gone ever since. Now, let's just be honest. Let's commend David a little bit here. David wants to get it back. Uh, the Philistines finally say, we don't want it anymore. It was causing them great curse, but Saul had no regard for it. And so let's commend David a little bit here. So David, he, he, he gets together some, some of his choice men and says, let's go get this thing. But the way he decides to go get it is the problem. Now, 1 Chronicles tells us this is David's idea. We know David's a man after God's own heart. But you know what? Being a man after God's own heart doesn't let you write the rules, does it? God writes the rules. The problem is in verse 3, you're in 2 Samuel 6. The problem is this. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart. There's the problem. You say, well, Philip, why, why is that the problem? Well, the word of God is very clear. In Numbers chapter number 4 and verse number 15, how the ark was to be carried. Where do they get the idea from? I don't know. It'd be speculation, but that's how the Philistines carried it. The Philistines put it on the cart, but you know what? The Philistines didn't know any better, did they? David knew better. He had his own copy of scriptures that he had wrote himself, that he had copied over. Numbers 4.15 says, man, it was to be born or to bear the ark. The word picture there is on every corner of the ark of the covenant were rings. And they would take two, two poles, one on each side. They'd take four, four Levites, they lift up the ark, and they'd put it on their shoulders. But that's not what David does, is it? David puts it on a cart. Now, I don't think this is a passage to rip on new things. I don't, I don't think that's the point of this passage at all. I don't think God's ripping on new things. I think God's saying, when I set a, a requirement in the Word of God, you stick to it. You see, truth is dogmatic. It's dogmatic. There is right and there is wrong. Here's how truth is dogmatic. Two plus two is four every time. It's never three. It's never 5. It's not 3.9 or 4.1. 2 plus 2 is 4. If you have $4 in your bank account and you spend 2 of them, first of all, you can't get a gallon of gas no more. You're hurting. But if you spend 2 of them, the bank every time is going to tell you, you got $2 left. Every time. Why? Because that's what's true. 
Well, you know, this book right here called the Word of God tells us what is true. If we're not careful, we have such a familiarity, we think we're the exception. We, we think we get to bend the rules. We, we think that we have the idea uh, that we can put whatever the Ark of the Covenant is in our, that we would be dealing with in our situation, in our lives, upon a cart. When God says, very specifically, this is how it's to be done. But you know what? Especially when we grow up in church, we better be very careful. We know the game, and I don't, I'm not trying to treat church and the Bible in, in an inappropriate way, but I think you understand what I'm saying. We, we know the game, and we know the rules, and we know when to say amen, and we know when to say oh me, and we know when to stand, and we know when to sit, and we know every single thing there is to know. And yet in the middle of all of that, all we ever received was information, and we never received transformation from the Word of God. And if all we ever received was enough knowledge to pass a VBS Bible quiz, then we have missed it. And we'll be tempted to think we can redefine what God requires. Well, Brother Philip, don't you know this is 2022? I do. Very aware. And God's word is still true. There's some things that don't change, and this is one of them. God says forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. There's not going to be ever, not one time, not one jot or one tittle ever pass away from God's word because it's forever settled. It's forever. And God, there's some things. God said this is right and this is wrong. You, 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 you get in line with me, or you get out of line with me, but there's not a third option. There's not a gray area. This is true. This is false. You can obey, or you can disobey. But we become so familiar. It's tempting to think we can redefine what God requires. 2022, in churches all across America today, or at least churches on the, on the billboard, and there, there was all kinds of things done in the name of Christianity today. Those all kind of welcoming messages put out for various different groups. Now, you hear me and you hear me well. God loves everybody. I'm glad God loved me. I was a sinner in need of saving, and God reached out and saved me, and I praise God for that. I'm not busting on sinners or on sin. I'm saying Christians better be careful about redefining what God requires. Young person in the room, you're not the first person to be a young person. You're not the first person to come through and think of all these great ideas, and I'm all for good ideas, and there are some ideas, amen, right? Sure, I'm glad we got air conditioning in the church, praise God. There ain't no air conditioning in the front of our bus, come to think of it. I lost 14 pounds on the way up here today, you know what I'm saying? Hey, at one point, air conditioning was new, and hallelujah for air conditioning. So I'm, I'm not, we're not against new, we're for truth. We're for truth. And for what God says is right, but you hear me, familiarity, it breeds complacency. Complacency is self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual danger. We just get complacent. You say it's different now. Uh, th- this, is, this is a new time. Here's one. This is my life. I get to peck. A- and this is what I want to do. Hey, listen, it's not your job to redefine the rules. If we go out tonight and play basketball, somebody's going to be tempted to rewrite the rules. But you know what? You don't get to take as many steps as you want before you dribble the basketball. There are certain, you, can't, you, you can go out of bounds, but it's the other team's ball. And if you step on the three-point line and make it, it don't count as a three. It's two. Why? Because there are rules. And God says there are rules. I set things in order. I've set things up that are not up for debate. The danger of familiarity is, man, you assume what has been will always be. You redefine what God requires And look at this this third truth. You underestimate how God responds. 
The danger of familiarity is you underestimate how God responds. Verse 6 tells us, They came to Nacon's threshing floor, and Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God, and he took hold of it. For the oxen shook it. So, so what's happening here? The, the cart is being pulled by the oxen. Basically, they get in a, in a bottom part of a ditch, and it's got ruts from the years, and, and maybe it's dried up right now. And So they hit some, 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 some potholes and some, some ruts, and man, that cart starts shaking. Those gold cherubims on top of the Ark of the Covenant, things top-heavy perhaps, and man, it, it starts, and it's about to fall off. Let's just be honest, friend. Immediate reaction, or maybe this is just me tonight, immediate reaction is like, way to go, Uzzah. Like, this is a big parade happening, a lot of celebration. We got the cornet and the timbrel and the psaltery, and we got 30,000 people out here. We really don't want the ark to bust open on the ground. I mean, we're just getting this thing back. So kudos to Uzzah for stopping the ark from falling. But that's not what God said. He puts forth his hand, and God strikes him dead around the spot. Immediately. Hey, I'm not the only one that thinks that way. David thought that way. Yeah. David didn't go, oh, well, that makes sense. We weren't supposed to have it on the cart, were we? It displeased David. God, what's the deal with that? Here we are trying to get this ark back, and you killed the very guy that got us off and that's helping us in the first place. See, one sin always leads to another sin. They, they, they redefined what God required, and, and here we are underestimating exactly how God will respond. Why? Because familiarity breeds pride. What Uzzah did that day is no different than what Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter number 3. The devil said, yea, hath God said? Has he really said that if you eat it, you're going to die? Come on, guys. And at some point, Adam and Eve had to get to the place in their mind where they said, you know what? In pride, we know better. God won't do that. Why would, God's not going to kill us. And because of familiarity, assumptions. It'll, we've always been in the garden. We'll always be in the garden. And they, don't, they underestimated how God responded. Us underestimated how God responded. And we respond sometimes that very same pride when we disobey the Lord. Why would God respond that way? Why, why, why would God treat us that way, we're guilty of assuming we can live how we want to live without any consequence. Without any consequence. I mean, why, why tithe when it's my money? Why should I? Yet the Bible clearly says, will a man rob God? And yet we, 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 we try to get around it. The Bible's clear and telling us, man, different commands. This is the will of God. And it tells us, even your sanctification. That's the will of God. It's the will of God that we should rejoice in the Lord. And yet we try to skirt around. And we blame it on personalities. This is just how ravens are. That's how ravens do things. No, 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 no. That's how the flesh does things. And spirit-controlled believers don't. Because they under, they, we, if we're not careful, we will underestimate exactly how God will respond. We think there's no consequence, and I don't know who I'm preaching to tonight, so I'm not accusing you of this. You're a great day. You're here on a Sunday night. But we underestimate how God will respond and how we treat His day. 
And anything can replace the Lord's day and this day. Mom and Dad sometimes can't figure out why little Johnny grew up to be Big Johnny and Big Johnny has no desire for church. Was well, because Big Johnny every weekend was playing in every tournament possible. And mom and dad told Johnny, they never used their words to say this, but their lives said this, Johnny, weekend tournaments are more important than worshiping God. So I would never say that. Our lives say it. And we underestimate the consequence in our children's lives. And they reap it. And we we go on weeks and months, me and you. We do. Let's, Let's be honest tonight. We, we've got, we have had seasons, if not in a season right now, where we, we never spend time in the Word of God. Not for ourselves. Not daily digesting Joshua chapter 1 and verse number 8. Meditate day and night. And God's given us this. God's given us apps to read it to us. You don't have to read it yourself. It'll read it to you. I mean, our lives can be so saturated with the Bible. And yet we're dehydrated from, from the lack of it. And then we get in the middle of a consequence, and we say, why is this happening to me? Now, I'm not saying every trial is because of that, because that'd be foolish, because of examples like Job. But perhaps there may be a trial in your life tonight that it is you underestimating exactly how God responded to the disobedience in your life. I, I submit it's, it's worth checking. It's worth saying, God, search me and know me and try me. And see if there be any wicked way in me. We, we've become so familiar. Well, surely we'll always have the Bible. Perhaps not, brother. You'd be more familiar than, than anybody in the room. Perhaps not. What a blessed people we are. And, and, and praise God for, for the access we have. But we've got to be on guard that we don't become so familiar that we assume what has been will always be. So, so, that, so that we don't begin to redefine what God requires. So we don't underestimate how God responds. You say, well, Philip, if I got that kind of familiarity in my life, what should I do about it? I close with this, this truth. Number four, don't lose the wonder. We didn't read these verses, so jump down to verse 10. It says, so David would not remove the ark of the Lord unto him. He left it there. He carries it to a side to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Verse 11, and the ark of the Lord continued in the house of Obed-Edom. Look at this, for three months. The Lord blessed Obed-Edom, all his household. It was told King David, saying, the Lord hath blessed the house of Obed-Edom, all that pertaineth unto him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. It was so that when they that bear the ark, exact same word used there as in Numbers 4 when it gave us the rules, They had gone six paces. He sacrificed oxen and fatlings. The Bible tells us for three months, we're not told exactly what David David does in those three months. So I'm going to have to use my holy imagination a little bit here for a second. But we know David's displeased. We we know David, is is by uh, by stories of his life, is a repentant man. He is able to be shown, thou art the man by Nathan the prophet, and then write Psalm 51 and get right with God and restore that fellowship. So we know David has the ability to, to humble himself in the sight of God. I submit to you, David goes back to the kingdom, gets back in the castle. I don't know how many days it takes him to get over the displeasure, but at some point, he gets in fellowship with God. I, I see David breaking out the scrolls 
and start looking, what, what, what did we do wrong? Perhaps he already knew. Perhaps immediately his mind knew that it, was the, that it was the cart. I don't know. But at some point, David gets right with God. Three months. And he comes back, and he does this, this time, just a little differently. Why would they move it correctly this time? Why change? Why not try it again? I say because David got back in awe and wonder of who God is. Wonder. Amazement. You know who is the best at wonder and amazement? We can all be good at it. We, just, we tend to lose it over time. You know who's the best? Kids are the best. You could take them to the world's greatest amusement park and, and whatever, that's great. But you know what else you can do? You can grab your five-year-old by the hands and you can spin them in a circle like this and that's just as good. And you know how I know they're amazed by it? Because you can do it till you almost puke and stop and then what are they going to say? Do it again, do it again. And, and you can do it 15 times in a row and the 16th time will be just as exciting as the first time. And they can't figure out why you want to stop, Dad. This is the best thing ever. Are you kidding me? I'm flying through the air up and down and my shoulders are about to pop out of socket. This is amazing. Best day ever. Do you know what, though? There's a lesson there. Because we lose the wonder and the amazement of who God is. His name is great. It's greatly to be praised. There's nobody like our God. But most of us, us, our group, I don't know better, but in the room, most of us in our group, we can't remember life without church. And I praise God for that. I'm not mad about that. But great day. I've always been around God. Always known God. Always. So I go to church every Sunday. And in the middle of all that, we lose the wonder. Just a week ago now, we wrapped up a missions trip. Some of the teens in here were with us, and we were in Homer, Alaska. In Homer, Alaska, I don't know how many times. Uh, my van, they probably tuned me out at some point, and that's fine. I don't care. I wasn't talking to them anyways. I was really talking to me. Look at that mountain. We'd seen that mountain. We drove the same way every day for 10 days. From, from where we stayed into Homer. Every day, we saw the same sight. But every day it was like, wow. Every time, I know my wife was sick of it. Come like, look at that. That's that glacier again. Look at that glacier. That's a glacier that a Becca book taught us about. That's it right there. I saw that in bold print and I didn't know it. That's it in real life. That's incredible. You know why it's incredible? Because God made it. We did a river float down the Kenai River. Man, you you load up. The the Kenai Lake is right there. And the Kenai Lake is only there because of the glacier. It's melted glacier. So we basically did a river float on a glacier. Kind of. But melted you start out, man, down this, this glacier, this river float, and you're like just, you know, you see these little ducks. we got ducks in Raleigh, but you're like, those are ducks in glacier water. Look at that. And then, like, we'd already seen a couple eagles throughout the week, but then we see our first bald eagle right there. Whoa, that's wild. Not, not but a, a couple hundred yards later, our guy, like, look right here, and there's an eagle nest 
And there's a, little, a, th- a couple three-month-old baby eagles in the nest. We see them. Whoa. Our boat counted. By the time this little, not quite two-hour river float got done, we saw 42 eagles. 42. And you know what was tempting in the 42? I mean, the two hours? Go. Eagle. Right there. Yeah. Eagle. Just kind of, we saw 42. You know what I'm saying? In a matter of like 90 minutes. So like one every other minute. Eagle. If we saw a bald eagle out here right now, we'd, we'd quit the sermon and go take a picture of it. We, we have this tendency, don't we? They say the universe, who's they? I don't know. The internet says the universe is 46 and a half billion light years across. Of course, a light year is how far light can travel in one year. 46 and a half billion light years. Light can travel 4.88 trillion miles in a year. So how big is our universe? Our universe is 46.5 billion times 4.88 trillion miles wide. I I don't know what that number is, but that is a lot of zeros. 46.5 billion times 4.88 trillion? Our debt's not even this big in America. This is a big number. And that's how wide the known universe is. I didn't say that's how wide it is. That's how wide the known universe is. And you know who's above that and beyond that and bigger than that? God is. And he said, my ways are not like your ways because my ways are higher than 46.5 billion times 4.88 trillion. I am so much bigger. And what is man that thou art mindful of him? And we think we know everything there is to know. And we can just get away with, oh, this is my life, and this is how I live, and this is how it's always going to be. Friend, tonight, let me urge you, let me encourage you to say, God, I don't want to lose the wonder. I don't want to lose the amazement. You saved my soul. It's tempting to hear in church. We had one kid get saved in church this morning. And we're like, I mean, we might get like eight amens. We had one kid get saved. They went from death unto life, from darkness unto light. Their eternal destiny was forever changed. Are you kidding me? That's incredible. They were saved. They were born with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And we're like, yeah, that's cool. That's a, not bad. We lose the wonder. We lose the amazement. Because the familiarity that's crept into our lives has brought assumptions. It has brought complacency. And it has brought pride. God forgive us when we're so familiar in a bad sense with God, that we miss it all. How about you tonight? Have you lost the wonder about the presence of God in your life? If so, I'd do a couple things. I'd repent. God, give me that kind of wonder. The amazement of a child. Bring it back. I want to be amazed by you. 
I don't want to lose how awesome you are, how great you are, how holy you are, how merciful you are. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. I don't want to miss that. Remind me of it. Keep my salvation fresh. Keep me filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And I get to sing in church. I get to sing in the choir. I get to teach a kid's class. I get to serve in the ministry. I I get to do all of these things for God. So forgive me. And God grant me that kind of wonder. Give it to me. God, I want it. I'm thirsty for it. I can remember. Perhaps you could say I can remember when I got saved. It couldn't get enough of it. God, get me back there. And keep me there. Because I don't want familiarity to ruin me.